0: SI 2019 stroke 519 is the statutory instrument 519 of 2019 that we are all going to need to get uh, familiar with. This is the jurisdiction and judgments brackets family close brackets open new brackets amendments etc close brackets open new brackets EU exit close brackets regulations so it's a pretty catchy title.
1: This is the Resolution podcast with Anita and Simon. Or Simon and Anita, as I prefer to know it. In these podcasts, we are going to explore topical issues of the day, hopefully so that we are all better informed at the end of them. And we might
2: have a bit of fun along the way as well, might we, Anita?
1: Well, I am on the Pensions, Tax and Financial Remedy Committee.
2: Oh, no fun then.
1: today we're going to be
2: listening to a discussion between three acknowledged experts in the field of international family law. First, we'll hear from Pauline Fowler. Pauline is a partner at Hughes Fowler Carruthers and the chair of the Resolution Pension, Tax and Financial Remedy Committee. We'll also hear from Daniel Eames, Daniel is a partner at Mitchell Moores and is chair of the Resolution International Committee. And the third speaker today is Tim Amos QC. Tim is a barrister and mediator at Queen Elizabeth Building QEB in London and an acknowledged expert on jurisdiction in divorce and financial remedy.
1: Simon, this is a really interesting discussion between the three of them. Uh, They cover jurisdiction, forum, recognition, the Lugano Convention. They cover some really interesting insights in relation to the need to ascertain foreign advice. There's some specific points if you have a case involving France, Germany or Ireland, and some points about pension sharing orders. It's a really helpful discussion.
2: I don't know about you, Anita, but I seem to have spent the last two years attending seminars trying to predict what the post-Brexit legal world was going to look like. And maybe it's, and now it seems to be about time that we began to find out what the post-Brexit legal world landscape really does look like.
1: Well, certainly there's no one better to hear that from than Tim, Pauline and Daniel. So this should be really useful. Yeah.
2: And we've had a little sneak preview, haven't we? And what's so good about it is the way that it really engages practically with the issues that we're all going to be facing
1: now. Well, that and Tim's very impressive ability to give the title of the regulations and statutory instruments, apparently without any notes whatsoever.
3: My name is Pauline Fowler. I'm a partner at Hughes-Fowler Carruthers Solicitors in London, but I'm also, um, importantly for the point of view of this podcast, um, chair of the Pensions, Tax and Financial Remedy Committee of Resolution. And these podcasts are a new initiative for resolution. We thought it would be interesting to have these and to use them as an opportunity to discuss areas of interest in financial remedy proceedings that affect us all.
4: I'm Daniel Eames. I'm a partner at Mitchell Moores LLP and I chair Resolutions International Committee.
0: And hi, I'm Tim Amos, QC, barrister and mediator at Queen Elizabeth Building, QEB, and I do cases that revolve around jurisdiction very often and speak for the IAFL on those matters as well from time to time
3: okay so should we get started talking about brexit and how it affects us all I thought if we had if we start off with jurisdiction and <clears> I wondered if if you've got any advice either of you for family lawyers if a new matter lands on their desk in which the other party is someone who's a member of the European Union and how how that's changed now that brexit has is a done deal and we are out of the EU ourselves
0: well let me dive in first uh, and what we we would do is talk about jurisdiction first obviously that's the the most basic point in any case that involves any other uh, jurisdiction or legal system and then as part of jurisdiction go on to consider forum in other words where that case is going to take place and then very importantly, Go on to consider the question of recognition, in other words, whether anybody is going to take any notice of orders that are made in England and Wales post-Brexit. And then perhaps finally touch on the question of Lugano and whether that convention, which effectively replicates Brussels one in an earlier version, and replicates it for the EFTA countries, whether that is going to be available to uh, the UK if the UK is able to gain readmittance to that uh, convention later on this year, or indeed at all. Uh, Looking at the first of those points, uh, jurisdiction, the takeaway is that the jurisdiction of the family court in England and Wales to deal with divorce, and therefore all of the matters ancillary to that, has increased as a result of the provisions put into effect for Brexit and in particular there is a statutory instrument that now sets out that new jurisdiction it is the SI 2019 and number 519 so SI 2019 stroke 519 is the statutory instrument 519 of 2019 that we are all going to need to get uh, familiar with. This is the jurisdiction and judgments, brackets, family, close brackets, open new brackets, amendments, etc., close brackets, open new brackets, EU, exit, close brackets, regulations. So it's a pretty catchy title. But again, the short point about it is that it uh, reiterates in part, in great part, the jurisdiction that we were used to under brussels II. however there are two particular differences one is a definite and obvious difference which is that going forwards we are back to sole domicile as a ground of divorce jurisdiction in england and wales and that being without the limitation that it has had under the maintenance regulation and that limitation has been that for sole domicile jurisdiction bases one has not been able to pursue any financial case based on needs and therefore maintenance and Duxbury have been out uh, under the jurisdiction rules of the maintenance regulation. The second difference is that going forwards there is a change in the wording of what was the Indents 5 and 6 of Brussels 2 in relation to habitual residence. And that change is more controversial as to what it means. On its face and on the outside of the packing, as it were, Uh, the change is definite and clear because the new rules provide in relation to habitual residence and this is the key point that the court has jurisdiction in England if the applicant is domiciled that's obviously in the English sense and habitually resident in England and Wales and has resided there for at least six months immediately before the application was made. Now on the face of it That is the Marinos definition or interpretation. In the case of Marinos, Mr. Justice Mumby, as he then was, but obviously subsequently Lord Justice Mumby and uh, the President before his retirement, he defined in Marinos the interpretation that what was required was to be habitually resident at the date of issue, provided that you had been normally or ordinarily resident prior to that for whatever was the prescribed period of time. So in the case of indent five, domicile and six months. In the case of indent six, residence for 12 months. That is the Marinos interpretation. And that is replaced by the new rules under the S.I. 519 in 2019. Applicant is domiciled and habitually resident in England and Wales and has resided there for at least six months immediately before the application was made or in the case of the 12-month prescription the applicant is habitually resident in England and Wales and has resided there for at least one year immediately before the application was made. Now there are two schools of thought about what that means, that change. There is the read the outside of the can interpretation, which, as I would suggest, is pretty clear that all that is required is habitual residence now and ordinary residence for the previous six or 12 months. In other words, in accordance with the Marinos interpretation or definition. There is, however, an alternative school of thought subscribed to by very serious and indeed well-known uh, members of our profession who specialise in this area and their view is that it is a much more narrow definitional change and it is a definitional change that is only designed to deal with the very narrow point aired in the case of Tan against Choi in the Court of Appeal in 2014 and the references 2014 EWCA 251 and the judgment there of Lord Justice Aikens. And at paragraph 30, Lord Justice Aikens sets out the difficult but interpretive possibilities of indents five and six. And the third of those, which is that the text only defines itself and is therefore, frankly, not very important. That third possibility is the possibility that is aired by those that say that the change in the rules is the narrow change that I've indicated a moment ago. That obviously is going to be the subject for argument and the only point to be aware of at the moment is that there is going to be that argument and it will need to be settled by a court decision. But unless and until that argument is settled, the result of both these changes firstly as to domicile secondly as to habitual residence question mark the result of both of those changes is that more cases are going to be eligible for jurisdiction in England under the new rules both because of the extension of domicile as a jurisdictional base and because of the question mark uh, extension of habitual residence back to the definition in Marinos. So that is the way forward for jurisdiction. And that in turn brings the question of forum to the fore, no pun intended, because if we have more cases in England as a matter of jurisdiction that are at least capable of being brought in England as a matter of jurisdiction, it is more likely that there will be alternative jurisdictions in which parallel cases can be brought. And therefore, whereas under Brussels 2 we have effectively had for the last 20 years a race to issue, what will now be much more important is likely to be the race to a decision. And Whilst waiting for that decision and no doubt racing along in the parallel jurisdictions, there then follows the question of whether we in England will reuse the anti-suit injunction, jurisdiction personified in the interlocutory injunction case of Hermaine, now 30 years old and more, and for the last 20 years in suspension because within the EU it has not been used. But, of course, anti-suit injunctions are still used outside the EU, and in particular the humane interlocutory category of anti-suit injunction is a very useful tool for preserving a level playing field so as to ensure that neither party rushes ahead in one jurisdiction whilst waiting for a decision as to whether to stay the proceedings in either or indeed uh, both of the jurisdictions the hermain jurisdiction itself has a real problem going forwards as to whether any foreign court system is going to recognize an english judge arrogating to herself or himself the power to stop for example let us say a french husband from continuing with French proceedings which he has started in France and let us assume that that is the country of his birth and his nationality and indeed the family base until let us assume recently.
4: That seems unlikely doesn't it that that the foreign court is likely to respect that.
0: Uh, I, I agree absolutely it seems to me highly unlikely that in the example I've given that a French judge is going to say yes well the French husband should be stopped from proceeding in my country, France, with his own French divorce proceedings. it might be still
4: effective against a husband here, for example. Yeah,
0: but but it's only going to be in personam if the husband, on my example, is present in England or indeed has useful assets from the point of view of enforcement against those assets, whether that's by way of sequestration or other inducements to the husband to... Comply, uh, we will see, but it's an area of immediate conflict on the horizon.
4: Pauline, going back to your sort of original point, I mean, obviously Tim has has focused on divorce quite rightly, said so, because that is the majority of the cases that we have. But there are other jurisdiction issues, of course, that we now have a, a variety of different jurisdiction uh, criteria depending on the type of case that you're bringing. So if you're bringing a, a failure to maintain. Claim. So, say, if there was a divorce in another jurisdiction, but there was no maintenance claim, then, of course, you could have used Section 27 in this jurisdiction as they did in Villiers. Um, and those criteria have changed as well, as well as Schedule 1. Schedule 1, in fact, is now wider than it was under the maintenance regulation, so sort of followed suit with the divorce and different jurisdictional criteria on 1984 Act claims. So it really depends yeah. on what the client is, you know, what the client's issues are and what the particular claims might be.
3: Mm. And also, presumably, on how much money there is, just in purely practical terms.
4: Yes, we all remember the, those first cases on Brussels too, don't we? The, with the test cases like where, you were know, extraordinarily expensive to decide where that case was going to be litigated yes. in the first place before you get to the outcome.
3: And so that the, the, that's I think one of the problems. I mean, what seems to me to be essential for any family lawyer who's got a case that concerns another jurisdiction is that um, they have access to decent and reliable advice in the relevant jurisdiction. I assume you both agree with me about that.
4: Absolutely, and that's a it's a key point. And I think it's particularly I think it's more important even more important now because, as you say, there's the additional cost of. The forum battle but it, it's often forgotten by practitioners that the, the foreign jurisdiction the other EU jurisdiction may apply English law in any event it begs the question why have the uh, why have the dispute although as we all know how English law is applied in the other jurisdictions isn't necessarily how the English <laughs> court might apply it. Not exactly. It's
0: especially because the Other jurisdiction is likely to categorise English law as being a matrimonial property regime of separate assets and to forget in categorising it in that way that we have a crucially important element of discretion as to the transfer of assets. uh, So that in effect, we end up with a matrimonial property regime that looks very similar to deferred participation in requests. But nevertheless, is categorised on the uh, other side as a sole property regime, and that has the great problem that most foreign judges will be wholly unable to get their heads around the discretionary adjustments that are necessary and made routinely in our cases.
4: I mean, the, the, the point, Pauline, I think that you're making is really. And without jumping to sort of the end of where this, this discussion may go but it's all very well winning the the race to decree or final judgment but then you've got to get then it's got to be recognized and that's where the problems are going to lay um, with the widening out potentially in some situations of the english jurisdiction that it's all very well us winning that battle the other problem the other thing we'll need advice on is how the other jurisdiction will deal with competing Uh, proceedings and we we just don't know the answer to that. Tim and I have sort of tried to get answers from some of our counterparts in (laughs) IFL about what that might be and we just don't know the answer to that yet.
0: Yes I mean if one were looking at a a rule of thumb it is that for non-English jurisdictions they will apply priority of commencement of proceedings and so the difficulty is going to be where an English case starts second because, let us assume, England is overwhelmingly the appropriate jurisdiction. And where that case starts second, and therefore the English judge is going to want to continue with it as an English case, that is where it seems to me that the foreign court is very likely to say, no, our proceedings started first, English were second, we're not going to take account of England, uh, particularly not um, given that it's the naughty person having left the EU. I think that's
4: true, Tim. But I think also even where we've started first, if we start on a jurisdictional basis, that the the other EU member state won't recognise, as say, sold domicile, there may be, I can see problems with those cases as well, even where we're first.
0: Don't you? Yes, I agree with that. And coming back to your point, Pauline, about other considerations, I absolutely agree that it's not only parallel advice that one needs, preferably upfront. But it's parallel advice on a 360 degree approach in the sense of looking at all of the issues, not just have I got jurisdiction to start a divorce, nor indeed just what's going to be the end product on the money. Where am I going to do better? But in particular, what's it going to cost me along the way and how long is it all going to take? And what sort of approach to disclosure is there in the respective jurisdictions? Do I want a jurisdiction where I'm going to have to disclose a great deal and therefore be able to get a great deal of disclosure? Or do I want a jurisdiction in which disclosure is frankly um, less important?
4: The other point I'd make on jurisdiction, of course, is, is things like nuptial agreements, which I think are going to
0: be treated very
4: differently. So up until now, having a forum clause in, in respect to the divorce, where there was another EU jurisdiction potentially involved, there was a, no weight or valid validity at all, but obviously if you now have a forum clause when you're considering a forum convenience dispute, if it says that a particular, another EU member state should have jurisdiction on divorce, I think that's going to have great weight in, the, in future cases. On the flip side, we've lost the potential for the English court to take jurisdiction under a uh, forum clause um, for maintenance. Although one questions whether um, anybody would choose England as the jurisdiction for maintenance where you're the party trying to protect wealth. Because obviously, in that situation, if you've elected for a, another EU member state to have jurisdiction on maintenance, then that will still be recognised by the, the EU member state. And one would assume that on a foreign dispute again, that the English court may recognise that. But going forward, if there was a prenuptial agreement that said that Mason should be dealt with maybe the English court under the new regulations would recognise that, there's obviously no requirement on the foreign member state to, to follow that. And that's, it. that's a change that's come in, which may be resolved through the Logano Convention coming into force, but it's not the case at the moment. Mm-hmm.
3: It's only if the Lugano yeah. Convention comes Only if,
4: Yeah. Yes. Although the the, the 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 you know the mood music on that is good, but, it, but who knows when? The other problem that not having Lugano in is is on variation cases. At the moment, there's no there are no um, there's no provision in the legislation for jurisdiction for variation cases. And I think the prevailing view was that when uh, a party came to try and vary an existing English order you had to look at jurisdiction afresh and uh, at the moment there's n- there's no legislation that says in, w- in what circumstances section 31 the matrimonial causes act uh, will apply and that the sort of view is that we go back to inherent jurisdiction if it's an English order we can vary it and um, that would be closed down if Legano came back in potentially. So there's a a window there for people who want to vary English orders who may not have had jurisdiction under the maintenance regulation.
0: And coming back to your thought also, Pauline, about different changes affecting different areas of the law and what Daniel was saying about divorce and uh, Section 27, failure to maintain, and of course also Schedule 1. Uh, It's right to say that in terms of forum shopping... The new changes in relation to Section 27 failure to maintain will actually make forum shopping more difficult because in relation to that area, Section 27 itself has been amended uh, by these SIs to provide 12 months of habitual residence. So in that sense, as also in the domicile sense under the divorce primary jurisdiction uh, amendments, we are turning the clock back Uh, as in so much else in relation to uh, legislation that comes out of Brexit. Um, We are turning the clock back to the old position that older practitioners will have operated um, for very many years, uh, namely of domicile or 12 months habitual residence.
4: Yes, but in a situation, Tim, where there weren't as many nationals here, so there's a potential hardship for a, for any national who's resident here, where their spouse is abroad and not yeah. domiciled here, then they, they're stuck for twelve months without being able to bring any sort of claim. So yes. you know, there, there's real... and that that statute is intended to relieve undue hardship.
0: Quite, <laughs> and the flip side of that, of course, is the domicile position of, say, the English. Let us assume wife who's lived in France for 20 years but has maintained her English domicile she is going to be able to issue now in England sitting at home in France but nevertheless issuing in England on the basis of sole domicile seeking a divorce which will enable her then to get the full panoply of relief. The other thing
4: we haven't touched on is, is pension sharing and, and the, the loss of of that remedy because of the loss of form of necessity under the maintenance regulation so in situations where neither party really had any connection to this jurisdiction but once lived here and worked here and had a pension uh, there was a potential under the maintenance regulation to share those pensions which is lost unless one of the parties resident or or domiciled here yes it's a good point and that's important that's important particularly because i think a, a number of i've come across it a lot i'm sure you, you both have was US states and often places like Germany where they assume that if they make an order about our pension or make some sort of declaration that we will then deal with that via some sort of pension order in England after the event. Of course, that won't be the case. So it's important that where there is an English pensioner, that's properly dealt with in, in the sense of offsetting against other assets, which may, may not be possible under those systems. So there is definitely a gap there.
0: And indeed in the classic case um, where I think it was first done Schofield was a it's a reported English case uh, the German court dealing with a British army serving uh, member of the uh, what used to be the British Army on the Rhine was in exactly that position that it wanted to divide equally the military pension could not do so made a recording that it's basis of its order was the assumption that the English court would divide it and of course in that case it could do so because of the form of necessity under the maintenance regulation that of course now has all gone and therefore whilst Daniel are absolutely right about offsetting that's great if there are assets against which you can offset it Mm. but in for example the case of Schofield there was nothing else. Or if you're applying a,
4: a sort of you know a particular match when a property regime, just may not technically be possible to offset in that way
0: yeah
3: yeah i think it's easy to forget that you know virtually every other country in europe operates a civil jurisdiction a civil code and so actually the approach to law is very different from our common law jurisdiction
0: absolutely and much much less discretionary
3: yes Yes.
0: And what follows from that as well, it seems to me that one really has to bear in mind that in the fallout from Brexit, in terms of the law, which is very stark, there is nevertheless a huge feeling of goodwill amongst our colleagues on the mainland, our colleagues in family law, family law practitioners. There's a huge Um, feeling of goodwill for very very pragmatic reasons which is that everybody is clear that the system and the security of the framework has changed and pretty much has disappeared and therefore it really is a case of self-help and who you know getting help on the ground from a network of foreign correspondent lawyers and so for example in france The subject of Brexit and its implications in family law was the subject of a specific workshop at the recent National uh, Lawyers Convention for Family Law in January of this year. In Germany, uh, the position has been set out in pretty exhaustive articles by one of their leading judges, Uh, both in terms of children, she's the Hague liaison judge uh, for uh, child abduction, but she has also written in the same sort of detail in relation to money issues.
3: Well, that's all very helpful to know, I
0: think. In terms of Lugano, uh, it's perhaps helpful just to touch on that again, although, Daniel, as you rightly say, it is inevitably speculation and it involves political speculation Uh, which is the worst sort of speculation, um, some may think. But it's right to emphasise that because the Lugano Convention affects most immediately the EFTA countries and also the bloc of the EU, we have been in Lugano thus far by virtue of being an EU member state. We are outside Lugano now because we're outside the EU, And therefore, in order to get back into Lugano, we have to have the permission of the other member Lugano member states, which in relation to EFTA, they've all given us their agreement. The problem holding it up is that the EU has withheld its consent to the UK getting back into Lugano. Now, that is genuinely a political issue. As Daniel said, the mood music is cautiously optimistic, very difficult to give a timescale probably back end of this year would be the earliest and it might well take longer as these things often do. But because Lugano is the mirror version of an early version of Brussels 1, not the recast, not uh, any form of Brussels 1 that we now would recognise, but nevertheless it is an early version of Brussels 1, it is very important to the civil lawyers in whichever country the civil lawyers, not just the family lawyers. And so there is a great pressure uh, on the government here from non-family civil lawyers in England and Wales, and indeed in Scotland separately, to get on and get us back into Lugano, because it represents a huge potential advantage in terms of jurisdiction and enforcement, which, for example, is much less clear under the Hague Maintenance Convention, which is frequently held up as being the worthy replacement of the European Maintenance Regulation. But there are significant differences between those two. And one of the differences is the absence in the Hague Maintenance Convention of primary jurisdictional uh, provisions. Hence why the Lugano question is an important and, relatively speaking, urgent one from the perspective of English and Welsh family lawyers and civil lawyers?
4: Um, So, as we've discussed, um, the jurisdictional criteria for bringing a divorce here in England and Wales is different uh, from the 31st of December. But under the the old EU regulation, uh, our our divorces would have been automatically recognised and going forward that that is no longer the case for proceedings that are started after 11pm on the 31st of December. And it will either be a, a mixture of um, it will be a mixture of um, either the national law of the Member state in which you're trying to have your divorce recognized, or you would be seeking to rely on the 1970 Hague Convention. The problem with the 1970 Hague Convention is that 15 of the EU member states are not parties to that convention, crucially, particularly in terms of traffic in sort of terms of English cases, Spain, Germany, and France are not uh, parties of the 1970 Hay Convention. So that, that is going to be an issue in terms of recognition of divorce. Interestingly though, under the 1970 Hay Convention, Although we talked about um, the, the problems of um, recognition and issues arising from the fact that we can now bring cases based on our sole domicile under the 1970 Hay Convention Uh, although they refer to habitual residence as being a a basis on which they would recognize our divorce, habitual residence is read in in terms of uh, domicile for those countries that apply domicile. So if you've got domicile, then you're, you know, if you're relying on sole domicile, and that would be sufficient under the 1970 Hay Convention, so for the remaining 13 EU member states that apply the 1970 Hague Convention, your sole domicile divorce petition may well be um, still good grounds for bringing jurisdiction and therefore for recognition but obviously for the other 15 member states you may have a, an issue getting your divorce recognised. The second issue is, is those financial orders that are made off the back of a divorce petition so if your uh, divorce petition is reliant on sole domicile you may have a difficulty in having your maintenance sort of recognised although just to make things even more difficult, the, the, the 2007 Hague Convention refers to nationality and not domicile. So it says that the other EU member state can refuse to recognise a all event sort of based on sole nationality, where the jurisdiction is based on sole nationality but not sole domicile. So we don't really know how that's going to play out. The other problem is for incoming orders. So uh, at the moment... UK orders is a two-stage process: so recognition uh, and then then enforcement, uh, so executor. But that doesn't apply, apply to incoming orders. But from the proceedings started after thirty first December two thousand twenty, incoming orders from other EU member states will be subject to the two-stage process. So it will be more difficult to enforce an incoming order. By virtue of the two thousand and seven Hay Convention, it was under the maintenance so That's a big change for for incoming orders.
0: And just picking up on Daniel's point about recognition of divorces, as an example, um, looked at the other way. There is a problem at the moment between Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, and England and Wales, and indeed other parts of the UK. But in terms of an English divorce based on the habitual residence of Irish people who are in fact domiciled in uh, the Republic of Ireland. At this moment in time, that is going to lead to non recognition in the Republic of Ireland. And Uh, Best information at the moment is that the amending legislation is likely to be passed relatively soon in the Republic of Ireland, but it is nevertheless a point that people need to have on board if you are dealing with a potential divorce between England and Wales on the one hand and the Republic of Ireland on the other.
4: But the point is that we've, we've got potential for conflicting judgments in two different jurisdictions and then issues of, of recognition enforcement as a result of the change in the regime. So that's the thing, Pauline, when you said at the start of this podcast about what you would be saying to someone who came in, it's not just about winning the jurisdiction battle, it's about whether the order that you get at the end of it is going to be worth the paper it's written on. And that, that's the real issue. So it's all about where are the assets. What, what are the pressure what are the pressure points for the, for the respondents do they have any connection to this jurisdiction because if they don't and their assets aren't in this jurisdiction then really your expensive mm. forum battle may not get you very far
3: entirely and um i mean i one of the things that struck, strikes me is what is the, the economically weaker party is that person more vulnerable now post uh brexit or
4: less. I would say absolutely. I would say definitely. This is definitely worse for the for the um, financially weaker party because yeah. all, all the complexity we've talked about, but also the additional layer of cost. That's that's the, that's yeah. the issue.
3: Yes, and the,
0: uh, I agree with that, subject to one exception. And it seems to me that is the domicile divorce yes. jurisdiction for the expatriate still domiciled spouse who is applying in England, say from the south of France, if they get in first, particularly, there's a very good chance that they're going to be able to pursue their English case without problems of competing jurisdictions uh, from France. And whilst the other party will feel that uh, advantage has been taken, nevertheless, the English court is quite likely to support that action and therefore in a new spirit of uh, splendid isolation to pursue the procedure to a result, which particularly if there are assets in England will then at mm-hmm. least be easily enforceable in England. Now yeah, that's the, the key limited, yeah. that limited exceptional fact uh, pack is going to be in those circumstances, cheaper, easier and possibly even quicker for the English spouse
4: that's right, Tim. It's the key is the assets here, because otherwise it becomes a bit circular, doesn't it? Because then you're absolutely right, but then if they can't enforce at the end of it because they're relying on sole nationality as the other EU member state may see it, then if the assets are outside
0: of England, then there's a problem. So, and it demonstrates once again the key point that whatever your starting point if you cannot enforce the order that you are going to get against assets that are enforceable against, then all you've got is a piece of paper and it may have the biggest number on it in the world, but it won't be worth very much.
3: Yes. So I suppose in fact, all this points to a need for um, the client to pay more in the way of costs upfront, where there's this kind of international element, because these issues need to be explored properly for informed decisions to be made that's yeah.
4: that's the. And i think sure. we'd all rather got into the habit hadn't we pauline you know, and assuming yes broadly what the french court might do and what the german court might do and therefore it was going to be better for our clients in this jurisdiction if we were acting for the financially weaker party we would just embark on it without <laughs> taking the same level of advice i think that's a very very risky thing to do now
3: yes i agree yes and i just think that those kinds of key points are worth bearing in mind and, people walk into your office for that first meeting or zoom on for that first meeting very good yes and so essentially it all kind of the the whole thing becomes circular doesn't it that in order to make the decisions you need to have a rough idea of where you might end up and what the what the cost of getting there could be but also what can be procured at the end of it
0: there is i suppose one further point in relation to implementation and enforcement, and it comes back to the Hague Maintenance Convention. Mm. If and for as long as we do not have Lugano available again, we are stuck in terms of enforcing an English money order abroad, we are stuck with the Hague Maintenance Convention. That is only going to enforce, if at all, an order that is needs-based and therefore a standard maintenance order, or indeed a lump sum order that is based on needs. And that brings us back to the classic categorization in Van den Bougaard, between capital and income based orders and which orders are needs based and therefore enforceable and which are not. Mm. So your sharing order is not going to be enforceable. Uh, but the question then is, what about your transfer of property order, particularly if it is transferring more than, for example, a life interest? Because why do you need to own the property rather than simply have a life interest in it? And that was the point raised in Islet and Blue Cross in the context of uh, the Inheritance Act uh, in the Supreme Court. And similarly, what about a straightforward lump sum? Is that wholly a Duxbury-based lump sum, in which case on the face of it, it should be enforceable, or does it have other elements which on the face of it are not going to be enforceable needs-based orders? Very important to categorise one's capital orders as needs-based if you are the applicant wanting to enforce abroad. That's key on the drafting of the order, isn't it, Tim?
3: Yeah. yeah. And I was also wondering about the position of gay couples Same-sex couples, because my understanding is that not every um, country recognises civil partnerships or gay marriage, um, and it would follow then that that a dissolution or a divorce wouldn't be um, recognised.
4: Is that that's right? And I mean, I think that the the reality is that on on those very strict terms in terms of recognition and dissolution there's no real change by by coming out of the regulations because if you couldn't dissolve your relationship in the other EU member state then there was no conflict and no possibility of competing just competing proceedings so there are there are sort of indirect effects but i think in terms of the recognition or the ability to dissolve uh, those partnerships or uh, or um divorces then i don't think there's any material change that because um the 1970 Hague convention doesn't define um whether it's a heterosexual or homosexual divorce there's no reference to civil partnerships but nor is there in the in the brussels 2 regulation Mm. i agree with that
0: Uh, i agree with that absolutely daniel Uh, i think the the extra point perhaps to make is that Where the particular difference, Pauline, in terms of recognition of same-sex partnerships or non-recognition comes through is in the matrimonial property regimes regulation, which the UK was never part of in any event. But it's right to say that that exposes a very clear east-west divide between those states that do and those states that do not recognise same-sex partnerships. But the corollary point is that in relation to enforcing an English maintenance order under the Hague Maintenance Convention, if that's what we're left with, one needs to start from the point of remembering that that Hague Maintenance Convention is a child maintenance convention unless and until each respective uh, member state signatory has extended it. Now, we have... Many I mean, states have. But you it, need- it, it,
4: there's, no, there's been no reservation by the EU on that, Tim. So that would say so it would apply to, to other types of orders as well, as I understand it.
0: Yeah. But outside the EU, outside one the needs EU, to check yeah. very carefully.
1: Simon, where should you go if you would like some more information about these topics. Well, if you log on uh,
2: as a member to the Resolution website, you'll find the updated Guide to International Family Law, which has links to everything that you'll need, and also in show notes for this podcast.
1: Of course, people can also go to the Resolution conference, which is going to be online this year. It's the 17th to the 21st of May.
2: Yeah, I'll be there, and tickets are available through the Resolution website.
1: Simon, I understand you're a bit of a podcast expert.
2: Anita, I've done one podcast, or rather one episode of one podcast.
1: Well, that certainly makes you the expert out of the two of us.
2: Yes, but you're an experienced public speaker, Anita. It's what you do for a living. I try and keep my life under a bushel at all times.
1: Well, no barrister could could say that about themselves. Simon, you're a solicitor at Forster's. Yeah,
2: I'm a partner at Forster's in London. I've also been involved in resolution for a long time. So I've sat on the children committee for over 10 years and I'm currently on the national committee and I'm the treasurer.
1: Oh, I didn't know you were the treasurer.
2: You know those jobs that there's, everybody sits in silence until somebody gets embarrassed and puts their hand up. It's the classic job of that sort. Um, Anita, tell me something about you. You're, I think you're one of those... Um, rare barristers who practices both money and children is that right?
1: I am indeed I'm a barrister at four paper buildings now uh, heading into my 18th year so am I a baby compared to you?
2: No I think you are probably a contemporary compared to me Uh, I don't know about you but I came into law slightly late in life so um, I'm younger in lawyer years than I am in person years. do you have a preference as between your financial and children practice?
1: Well, I enjoy doing a mix of both. My balance is more financial work, but I wouldn't want to do just one or the other. I like having a mix. Do you, do you purely do children?
2: No, no, absolutely not. I probably do slightly more financial than children on balance. But, you know, clients' problems don't come neatly packaged, do they? And certainly when they come to see a solicitor, they expect you to be able to deal with all of the issues that they
1: come with. Simon, we're going to try and keep these podcast episodes topical. I
2: think we're going to be trying to focus on children, partly because there's the big Court of Appeal judgment coming up on domestic violence and contact. And also we're thinking about having an episode looking at when contact disputes get really tricky, intractable contact, as it were, and how people can work their way through cases like that. But generally, if people have got ideas that they think they'd like us to focus on or speakers that they'd like us to invite along, then please do get in touch. What what would be the best way than doing that, Anita?
1: There's a page on the Resolution website dedicated to the podcast and also via Twitter. So it would be wonderful if our audience members could tell us what they would like us to address or who they would like us to speak to. I've really enjoyed our first episode, Simon.
2: Yeah, it's been fun, Anita, and looking forward to doing some more. See you soon. Bye, Anita.